Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me this week is Phoebe Watson. Hello! It's lovely to have you. Good to be on again. As my sole remaining form of uh, company. (laughs) It's great that we get to spend some more time together, unlike all of the time that we spend locked in the flat together. But it is still lovely to have you on the podcast, and it's great because we are getting to talk about something that you and I have been working towards talking about for a little while. We are. This has had like a fair amount of prep just because it took us so long. Yeah. I mean, we could have done it faster, but we were enjoying the prep so much. We are going to be talking about Dracula for this episode. And. Spooky! I'm going to come to that in a second, but I will say I have read Dracula before, but Phoebe had never read it. And I had attempted to read it and not gotten very far. Exactly. So for the month of October, we set aside a time a couple of times a week to listen to the audiobook together while doing our various crafts or and how many hours was that? I think it's like fifteen hours. That was eighteen. So yeah, maybe it's eighteen. So it's a fairly substantial like listening experience. But we could like you could have definitely just read the book faster. But it was so nice to get to share that time. And it's a great audiobook. It's a really good audiobook. Yeah, I definitely found it a lot easier to listen to than I had when I tried to read read it the first time. Yeah, we have it I have it from Audible. They have like a monstrous collection which has three together, but uh the narrator, the male narrator is Greg Wise. There's also a female narrator, but I can't remember her name. <laughs> because it's written just to explain it's written in uh, epistolary form. So there's letters, so there's two narrators, but um no, it was lovely getting to to listen to and obviously we got to do it in October, which was a very sort of fitting month to be listening to it. Um, I was slightly um, miffed, let's say, that we didn't release, we didn't have it finished in time to release this episode in the last episode, because that came out one day before Halloween, which I was like, that would have been perfect. But in my own defence, what I will say is that much as Christmas Day is actually the start of the Christmas season. Halloween is actually the start of the month of the dead. And so really as Catholics, to be liturgically appropriate, we should really be indulging in such spooky activities in the month of November. And actually, uh, speaking of Christmas, I was recalling that the most literary appropriate day for ghost stories is not, in fact, Halloween, but actually Christmas Eve. So, Ooh, interesting. Are we late or are we just very early? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think even ignoring the spooky side of it, it is about the undead and what it means to die. Yeah, and the salvation of souls and what happens to your soul in the afterlife. So Which is all very fitting. It is very fitting. So I think I think November is still a pretty good month for a Dracula episode. <laughs> but I guess our last episode that Phoebe and I did together was on Piranesi, which was a very new book. Now that we're going back to... Dracula, I'm allowing us a little bit more leeway to talk about the plot and potential spoilers because it is, you know, a Victorian novel. It has been out for, you know, only a couple of hundred years. (laughs) I think we are going to have pity on the people who are like me Mm -hmm. and haven't managed to read it, but kind of, I think we all have a vague idea what Dracula is about. I mean, it's not a spoiler to tell you that Count Dracula is a vampire. What? No way! Yeah, uh, I think Dracula is definitely one of those ones... I think Frankenstein is definitely the example of the original story being the furthest from the popular culture depiction. Like, the Frankenstein of popular culture is just so unrecognisable from the one from the books. But I think Dracula is sort of similarly different. So, you know, I think most listeners will know the Dracula figure. But if you haven't read the book, it is quite different to what you might imagine. And I really loved it. I kind of wasn't expecting to love it as much as I did. Like I said earlier, it's written in the form of letters. And that makes it a really kind of, I think that adds a lot to the spookiness of it, because no one person has the full story. So you're always getting parts of the perspective of the different people in the novel. Yeah, and you kind of have a little bit more information than the people in the novel because you have 
the parts of the story building up to it. Yeah. Especially in like in the earlier half. Yeah. So you kind of trying to piece bits together and figure out who's who and what's going on. Yeah. And so to give a kind of as vague as possible story overview, I'll just say that the book is sort of split into different sections. It begins with a lawyer, Jonathan Harker, who is making his way to a client's castle in Transylvania. Again, not a spoiler, it's Count Dracula's castle. He turns out to be a vampire. <laughs> yeah, so and so the first section, which I think is maybe my favourite section, is this sort of first encounter with Count Dracula and he's writing his diary and talking about the kind of gradual realisation of the evil presence that he's in. And then the story then kind of moves locations. So Dracula has had a plan to move to England for a while and that's what Jonathan Harker is there to try and help him to facilitate him just as you might with a normal person obviously he's not (laughs) (laughs) he's not in league with the vampire (laughs) Um, but so the the story then moves to Whitby in in Yorkshire which is where uh, Count Dracula's boat comes in to harbour and so it's about the people who kind of first encounter Dracula and his, his first victims and the emergence of Dracula in to England and then after that it moves to London where a group of people who have all been affected by the arrival of Dracula all gather in London to sort of wage war on the vampire and to try and defeat him and a lot of the plot at that point takes place in an insane asylum because one of the characters Dr John Seward who he is affected by the coming of the uh, of the vampire he runs an insane asylum and offers it up as as a base for their attempt to take on the vampire. So there's a lot of very spooky settings. There's a lot of kind of strange characters. There's a couple of inmates that are in the insane asylum that play a role. It's got a lot of great atmosphere. And I think that's one of my favourite things about the book is there's a really good gothic atmosphere to it that sense of dread and that sense of not knowing what this evil presence that's around them is it's really fun yeah and I think also it's got some just delicious passages of chilling descriptions yeah that particularly when read out are just beautiful I think it's also a real reminder to us that these were still novels that were written to be read aloud Mm -hmm. that they're not today's like fly through them fiction yeah, I think because we're so used to like, if everyone wants to read a book, they all just buy one copy of it. But certainly I think among families, it still would have been the tradition to, you know, buy a copy of it and read it together. And then there's one other character that I need to mention because um friend of the show, Chloe, will never forgive me if I don't ma- mention her favourite character. Of <laughs> I think he ranks pretty highly in all of her favourite fictional characters. But there is a Dutch lawyer slash doctor called Van Helsing who uh, comes into the mix and he is sort of more knowledgeable than the rest of the English people about the the background of the vampires and so he is kind of the main catalyst for them having any ability to take on the vampire at all but yeah there it's it's a really nice group of characters as well there's so I feel like there's some really strong female characters in it definitely yeah yeah so I would really recommend reading it if you haven't but it's also a very surprisingly catholic novel it was obviously written by Bram Stoker who was Irish but he was a protestant Irish which in the history of our country kind of like is quite a distinct group of people kind of separate from a lot of Irish culture but it usually means quite English really <laughs> yeah I need to look as in- you can kind of tell from my accent because I come from a little bit of that too <laughs> Um, yeah, I need to look into a little bit more of his life, but he was very highly involved in the theatre scene in London, and so I, I, you kind of get that sort of sense of theatricality about Dracula. But he wrote it, despite being from a Protestant background, he comes from a Catholic country, and then his wife, kind of shortly after this, becomes Catholic herself, and so... It is an oddly Catholic book and an oddly pro-Catholic book in a time when 
Catholicism, especially in England, was not particularly well received. And certainly in the the Gothic genre, there was very much an era, especially at the start of the Gothic era, where all of the evil machinations of the world can sort of be foisted upon those crazy papists. (laughs) Just blame the papists, be fine. (laughs) Yeah, they were seen as like exotic and demonic and all of those things. So of course they would be linked with all of these horrible stories. Um, There's a sort of like a, a fascination and a dread of Catholicism that comes through. So it's just interesting that actually in Dracula you get you get a surprisingly pro-Catholic story. Does that tie us into the other book we're going to talk about a little bit? Yeah, I think that's actually a great point. There's a book that came out a couple of years ago called A Bloody Habit by Eleanor Burke Nicholson. She's a Catholic author and she kind of specifically wanted to write some of the Catholic wrongs in Dracula because while it is a, a Catholic inspired novel it's definitely written by someone who's standing on the outside and gets a lot of like important details about catholicism very wrong and very muddled it's it like i feel quite affectionate when i read it um actually that's a good point we have had a discussion of dracula on this podcast a long time ago it's almost coming up to two years ago in our episode on romanticism which i did with chloe and we talked about frankenstein and we talked about dracula but that was was much more to do with the kind of themes of romanticism in general rather than specifics about the book but i remember chloe saying in that that she feels very affectionately towards dracula almost like when you see a dracula kid... the book not the character <laughs> that's a good distinction um but you know it's almost like when a kid holds up a drawing of something and you're like oh it's so close it's good <laughs> Yeah, there are a couple of, like, egregious mistakes, which we're going to talk about later. Yeah, but Eleanor Burke Nicholson, when she wrote this book, A Bloody Habit, was kind of speaking to Dracula from a more informed Catholic standpoint. Obviously, like I said, she's Catholic herself. And so it's a really fun book. I certainly enjoyed it. It feels fun for me, at least, to pick up a book that definitely enjoys the Gothic ambiance and revels in it, um, even though it's obviously a a much more modern novel. And so, yeah, I think we're going to pull out a couple of counterpoints from that novel as well. Yeah, and it does the very sensible thing of when encountering the supernatural, get a priest in. Yeah. (laughs) That's step one, get a priest. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it has a, a great Dominican priest. And the cover is just so great. It's got like the main Dominican priest, Father Gilroy, on it. And it it's... A lovely object as well. Like I just love to see books coming out that are kind of high quality the whole way through from co- from cover to cover, as it were. Um, yeah, I read it before um, I read Dracula, mm. and it definitely gave me a desire to read Dracula. Yeah, but I did also find it maybe a little bit more confusing. I think it's quite a confusing book anyway. Mm-hmm. A little bit like Dracula, you're supposed to be kept a little bit dark. confused and kept in the dark. Mm. But there was definitely some parts that, because they were referencing Dracula, yeah. I was just like, mm, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it has a format which means that at the start of every chapter there's actually a quotation from Dracula. So Yeah, and that quote does kind of give you a little bit of context to the chapter. Yeah, absolutely. And so in some ways it's definitely, it's not a sequel to Dracula. It's not a Dracula rewriting. Yeah, definitely, to be fair, he's reading Dracula in the story. Yeah. So it's a very obvious reference rather than like, oh, I'm just going to fix these errors. Yeah, exactly. But I would say it is almost like a companion piece to Dracula. Yeah. Uh, I think a bit like Phoebe, maybe you could read it first if you're trying to test the waters whether you'd be interested in this kind of book. But And it's a much quicker read. <laughs> yeah. But I, I would probably, on the whole, recommend reading Dracula first. So I think we better get to talking about Dracula itself. Yes. So I think the biggest thing we wanted to talk about in Dracula is the very real presence of evil Mm. and how Catholic that is in that Dracula's, I think, as opposed to some of like our modern understanding of vampires, Dracula is not human. Mm -hmm. He's not Mm -hmm. human-like. Well, he, like, he is like humanoid. Yeah, he can take the form of a human. Yeah. But he is very much a complete evil. Yeah. He doesn't, He's not a being who has a soul to make moral choices with. Mm-hmm. We learn at some point in the book that the victims of vampires are that like 
souls that are then trapped in a vampire form, mm-hmm. but they are not the souls distorted. Yeah. They're, like, there is an entrapment there. Yeah, I, I think he's a really interesting example of evil. Like we were saying, it's kind of refreshing to read about a physically real evil. It's not like an evil presence, or it's not just an evil corruption, I guess, or like a um, misdirection of good intentions or something like that, that he is an actively evil agent who is acting out an evil plan. And I think what's interesting about it is is that the characters who are used to um, being sort of middle-of-the-road English Protestants are more comfortable with a more kind of spiritual conception of evil. And this is a this is sort of like a slamming up of evil into reality that they're not really equipped for in many ways. And I think, you know, I think it's good for us to to still conceive of evil. I mean, like, obviously evil can take a lot of different um, aspects in our modern world. But that as Catholics, we do believe that there is an evil force. Eleanor Burke Nicholson, when she was writing A Bloody Habit, she she had a couple of interviews where she was talking about how she felt like in Dracula, Bram Stoker gives Dracula kind of too much power, that it's sort of manichaeism, that it's an equal power of evil battling an equal power of good. And there are some details in the story which do kind of tend in that direction. But I do think, on the whole, the impression that I got was less that it was that evil was equal to good, but that it is a reminder that evil is still an actual presence that is in our lives. Yeah, and I think it's also really interesting that that evil is repulsive. Mm. That when we learn about Dracula and meet him, mm-hmm. there is like a... I guess seductive element to him, mm-hmm. but also a repulsive element to him. Like yeah. you have, particularly those parts about the smell that they're encountering. Yeah. Um, that's really pervasive and yeah, you know, really makes the evil present in that place. Yeah, and I think a really big part of that is the sort of moral foundation of the humans that are encountering him, because in the in the novel, the good characters are pretty much just good you know they're they're very morally grounded they all seem to believe in god they all act on their principles they don't use like devious methods to get what they want from life like they're all very upright and morally upstanding and yet still interesting yeah yeah they're not bland but what i what i mean is that i think they have the moral grounding to be repulsed by this evil that you get that perspective of being horrified by evil in front of them yeah, I think in terms of, like, the seductiveness, there's, like, a female vampire in it mm. that is tempting one of the men. And it's, she went over on her knees and bent over me, simply gloating. There was a deliberate voluptuousness which was both thrilling and repulsive. Yeah. So even these good men are under the sway of the vampire to a certain extent in that moment. Mm-hmm. But they also recognise that as repulsive. Yeah, but they inherently know that that's a distortion of the good rather than, like, what you should be aiming for, which is what a lot of lipstick commercials today would sort of suggest that (laughs) is what you should be really wanting. Um, Yeah, I think that's really important, and I think that kind of leads into an area that I was interested to talk about. I've um, encountered some Catholic commentary on Dracula, which tries to downplay the sort of sexual element in it. And obviously, like, I will preface this by if if you want to read Dracula there isn't any sex in it there's not nudity there isn't anything like that it is more about a sense of like like Phoebe was saying this combination of um seductiveness and repulsiveness that it is kind of uh it's sort of an element in it that is part of the horror of it so it's less explicit and more just um implied in many ways but the thing that I would say is that I think the point that these Catholic commentators are trying to make is that in recent times we've delved very much into making the vampire the hero, making him sort of sympathetic, making him someone that you're rooting for, and they're kind of saying that this is a a modern distortion of how we should approach our morals, and I can definitely understand that, but in, in the way that they talk about it, I think they kind of downplay the fact that there is a sexual element 
to this vampire story, it's actually less than... There's a couple of stories that come before Dracula that were novels about vampires, and they were much more explicitly sexual. So it's interesting that he sort of takes a step back from, from it, and that ends up being the most famous version of this. But uh, it is definitely still there. And the reason why I think it's important to say it's there is that, as Phoebe was saying, that the point is, is that it's horrifying, that this is part of the moral lesson of Dracula, which is that this is an evil version of sexuality. And in that way, it's an inversion of what we would consider the theology of the body. There's that sense of forcing people into this. There's that sense of um, consumption rather than um, offering yourself to them. There's this inversion of what it means to generate life from sexual uh, encounters. Instead, yeah. it's like generating death, you know? That the beloved is something to be consumed mm -hmm. and forced against her will. Yeah. Um, not a free giving of self. Yeah. And so, to me, I feel like the version that Bram Stoker kind of conveys in this novel, it is there, but the point is is that it's actually within the Catholic understanding of it because it's, it's a deliberate inversion. And we'll go to this in a minute, but it's also... Dracula has an element where he's also inverting the sacrament of the Eucharist. So everything to do with Dracula is an inversion of the good. And so because of that, there's an inversion of this sexuality, which the novel itself recognises as a bad thing. There's a quote which was on a blog by Tom Riley, which I thought was really observant. And he said, God created man and woman in such a way that they would be fruitful and multiply, producing children. But at the end of the confrontation with his brides, Dracula serves up someone else's child for the junior vampires to destroy. And then he goes on to say, Dracula's system even features provisions for reproduction, though not exactly for procreation. Vampires reproduce, appropriately for bloodsuckers, parasitically. They convert mortals into vampires. In effect, they recruit rather than procreate. Yeah, that's so good. I think just to go back to your point on like modern vampire tales, mm -hmm. I think it's also just that we have to take them as a completely different sort of being. Mm -hmm. That there is a place for saying that maybe we judge too quickly and that which we think can't be redeemed can be redeemed. Yeah. But that Dracula is not that being. And mm. um, I just wanted to read out one of the quotes that really enhanced his inhumanness to me. This is when um, Jonathan Harker is in Count Dracula's castle. What I saw was the Count's head coming out from the window. I did not see the face, but I knew the man by the neck and the movement of his back and arms. In any case, I could not mistake the hands which I had had so many opportunities of studying. I was at first interested and somewhat amused, for it is wonderful how small a matter will interest and amuse a man when he is a prisoner. But my very feelings changed to repulsion and terror when I saw the whole man slowly emerge from the window and begin to crawl down the castle wall over the dreadful abyss, face down, with his cloak spreading around him like great wings. At first I could not believe my eyes. I thought it was some trick of the moonlight, some weird effect of shadow. But I kept looking, and it could be no delusion. I saw the fingers and toes grasp the corner of the stones, worn clear of the mortar by the stress of years, and by thus using every projection and inequality, move downwards with considerable speed, just as a lizard moves along a wall. Yeah, that's one of my favourite descriptions of him. So good. It's so creepy. It's so unexpectedly creepy as well. And I think it's also the part of Dracula that you don't expect to see from modern pop culture. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's it, it's so inhuman that like I think a lot of modern conceptions of vampires are just people with slightly sharp teeth, you know? Yeah. I, Who I, happen to have slightly different drinking preferences. Exactly. Yeah. No, I love it. And I think it's so clever the way that Bram Stoker inverts so many of the sacraments. We'll get to the Eucharist now in just one second, but he, he at one point he attacks one of the female characters and uh, she relates what happened like she's not really aware of it when it's happening but afterwards she can re recall it and she says that he says to her and you their best beloved one are now to me flesh of my flesh blood of my blood kin of my kin my bountiful wine press for a while 
just those words are so tied up with the marriage vows. That flesh they, of my flesh. Yeah, it's such a distortion and such a creepy inversion of what those things ought to be. Yeah, and then to take the image of like a bountiful wine press mm-hmm. and make her the food. Yeah, it's so unsettling, which I think really brings us to what I've been leading up to, which is this anti-Eucharistic element of Dracula. And I was when I was preparing for this podcast, I was reading a couple of different articles which were exploring some of the different potential imagery that inspired Dracula. I think um, one of the kind of less savoury ones that people have pointed out is that maybe it's a sort of version of the anti-Semitic propaganda that would have been going on at the time of like Jewish people coming and stealing babies and drinking blood and this sort of like awful monsterization of other people that was happening at that time. To me, I guess uh, reading it as a Catholic, the anti-Eucharistic element is so obvious. It's it's such a clear inversion of what that should be. Eleanor Berg Nicholson actually wrote for Dapple Things. She talks a little bit about this more in detail. Um, she says, After the ascension of Jesus, morality and the supernatural return to their separate spheres. The Eucharist transcends this division as the actual sacrifice of Calvary occurring mystically in an unbloody manner. The sacrament brings the reality of a past action into the reality of a present. In a dark mirroring of the sacrament, Dracula is a superphysical being in whom a supernatural power is lodged. The Eucharist is the ultimate transformative and life-giving agent. Vampires consume blood to perpetuate an undead eternity. The blood on the cross was given willingly. Vampire victims do not submit of their own volition. They are hypnotised, entranced and otherwise reduced to an altered state of consciousness. Dracula's Satan is thus elaborately developed, engaging in an anti-sacrifice and an anti-Eucharist. Dracula is the apocalyptic antichrist who comes to collect souls and set up an alternative eternity to that promised in the New Testament. So good. It's so good. There's an article which was in Crisis magazine which says, Through mere glimpses of him, however, demonic accuracy is achieved. Dracula is an antichrist. He cannot attack unless willingly engaged. He baptises his victims in his blood, even as he drinks theirs in a sacrifice that gives eternal life in animated death. He unites captive souls to his existence, thriving on the unhallowed. He twists scriptures to his purpose, lusts for worship, and fears Christ. Dracula portrays evil authentically, but in such a fantastical mode that it sometimes borders on the farcical, rendering the devil his due by both accounts, for he deserves to be a momentous object of mockery. Dracula reflects this orientation by being intentionally serious and unintentionally silly at once. But yeah, I I think it just is so interesting in the way that it subverts this thing that's so at the core of, of Christian and then specifically Catholic understanding. I love that idea of both taking the devil seriously and not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, like that Dracula has so much power in some ways, mm-hmm. but is also very easily defeated by others. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's there's use of things like garlic, it mentions like wild roses, but the main objects that they use against Dracula yeah. is... Rosary, crucifix, and then the sacred wafer. Yeah. I think that brings us to, uh, like, the other element of the story that we really wanted to talk about, which is the both fantastic and appalling use of sacramentals and sacred objects in Dracula, which is so haphazard and so all over the place. It is bewildering to Catholic readers. You do kind of wonder what Bram Stoker did or didn't know. It's kind of like, how? (laughs) I know. So to address the most egregious one first, which is that he seems to at least condone the idea of the true presence of the Eucharist in that it... That is how the characters at least interact with the the various consecrated hosts that appear. To a certain extent. To a certain extent. They verbally assent to it, but then their actions are so mystifyingly at odds with that belief. So essentially... Yeah, like, so Van Helsing, Mm -hmm. uh, the um, professor from Amsterdam, is the one who brings 
the all of the sacramentals to yeah. play in most of the novel. And I think that is, as far as I know, everyone talks about him as a Catholic character. Yeah. I don't... I It says he wears a crucifix, but it never explicitly says that he is Catholic. But I presume, given the way that the story goes, I think we're ta- supposed to take it that he is the only Catholic in this group. Yeah, and it describes... When they talk about the host, mm-hmm. it says that it's that which is most sacred to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, it, yeah, it's just bewildering. So he goes to the Netherlands in order to sort of amass the tools needed to take on Dracula, which... Inc- which starts with wild garlic. Fine. Yeah. He orders that from, from a professor who has, like, a stash of it. Great. And then the next thing he brings back... It's just, you know, consecrated wafers, which are described as being carried in an envelope, and he is says that he has a dispensation... No, an indulgence. An indulgence, wrong word, to do whatever he wants with them, which at one point includes crushing them up into a powder to mix into putty to seal a tomb. Like, it, it's just so wild to me that you could get so far in understanding the Eucharistic host and then be like, oh, and we'll just fling these things around willy-nilly as we need them. <laughs> I think for that, we have to jump to the beginning of The Bloody Habit mm-hmm. because in it, the main character and the priest are talking about Dracula. Mm-hmm. And the priest is talking about of sacramentals in it. Um, it's all that other business that is so ridiculous. Little things, like that business of the consecrated host and the putty. Rome would never grant a dispensation, and it would be a dispensation, not an indulgence. But it's all silly nonsense. Yeah. It, it, like, it is sort of like so infuriating. And there's another point, which I actually think I find more offensive than the crushing up the host is there's a character who's been attacked by Dracula and Van Helsing then goes to bless this character with the host which again like (laughs) you might need a priest for that anyway we'll come back to that um (laughs) should we read it (laughs) yeah now let me guard yourself on your forehead I touch this piece of sacred wafer in the name of the father the son and There was a fearful scream which almost froze our hearts over. As he had placed the wafer on her forehead, it had seared it, had burned into the flesh as though it had been a piece of white hot metal. And then the character then goes on to shriek, unclean, unclean, and... Even the Almighty shuns my polluted flesh. Yeah, and, you know, I just feel like that is such... A, like a damaging construction. It, to me, it comes back to that line in the Bible that nothing from without can can corrupt. It all of your corruption comes from within, and so I just think that it's so harsh on this character that Bram Stoker writes that having been attacked by a vampire, that God and, would then forsake them and never having freely chosen. Yeah, and by freely chosen, I don't even mean like making a half-informed decision, I mean, she was asleep. Like, there was in no way that her will was engaged in choosing this evil. Yeah, it's so, like, honestly, it's the thing that annoys me most when I'm reading it, because I'm just like, no, like, she's not been abandoned. God would never abandon her. Like, it just, yeah, yeah, that's the most infuriating thing. And I think when we were talking about the, like, maybe evil being too powerful and Mm. manichaeism in the book, this is possibly where it comes in, that... When she's being corrupted like that, their only recourse is to kill Dracula as the one who has corrupted her. And that there is nothing holy which can cleanse her and make her holy again, which is a complete inversion of our faith. Yeah. That we absolutely believe in that redemption. Yeah. And you're just like... Yeah, we'll just get her to confession. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. She might need to convert first, but, I mean, considering we're... I'm sure she'd do that. uh, uh, Considering she's already witnessed, like, a sort of supernatural power of the the host, it shouldn't be that difficult to get them to convert. But anyway, but I guess, despite the fact that that thing is so infuriating, I will... uh, One more point. I will say that, like, so much of this could have also been solved if he had just used, like, holy water and holy salt instead of the wafer. Yeah, you described it beautifully, saying that he uses the host as, like, the uber-sacramental instead of a sacrament itself. Yeah. 
Exactly. So, you know, in the story, a lot of sacramentals get used. But yeah, there's almost like a sense that I, I have to reach the top of the ladder to actually to have it be effective. And you're like, you've you've way overshot yourself. You shouldn't go up that high. Like, that's, that's not appropriate. <laughs> but what I do like is the use of sacramentals. Um, like we said, some of the there are some natural remedies, um, garlic and wild rose. I will say I did try to look up exactly why those are associated, but as we've seen, to me at least, there's so many connotations within nature that have been woven into Christianity that um, I don't necessarily think it's automatic that like the garlic and the rose are separate from the sacramentals. I think that they might be more like a sort of natural sacramental or something like that. Yeah, I think it's the idea that the vampire is an evil that predates Christianity. Yeah. And that predating the sacramentals of Christianity, there would be other things in nature which would also protect you from the vampire. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, but that they do use sacramentals. I think one of my favourite ones is a line about um, someone who's caught on a boat with Dracula and is found, he's found dead, but he's found with his rosaries, like, tied around his hand to, like, protect him. And he's knowingly tied that, going, I've tied that which which he, which he cannot stand. Yeah. Um, in order to save his own soul. Absolutely. And so the thing that I really love is that while we have said that Dracula is very much a physical presence, um, I think one of the reasons that that really speaks to the Catholic experience is that we do use physical things in response to the threat of evil. There's a line from Roger Ebert um, when he was reviewing, I think it was one of the exorcism movies, but I think it so encapsulates a very Catholic approach where he said, when it comes to fighting vampires and performing exorcisms, the Roman Catholic Church has the heavy artillery. Your other religions are good for everyday theological tasks like steering their members into heaven, but when the undead lunge up out of their graves, you want a priest on the case. (laughs) (laughs) I, I think that's really true. Like, I think whereas a lot of other denominations spiritualize everything away from physical objects, I think Catholicism has always maintained that we are physical creatures and that God became incarnate. And so the things that we touch and the things that we feel and the things that we carry around with us can have an impact and can can be a part of our faith. Yeah, it ties in with that whole idea of that which you do with your body impacts your soul. Yeah. And that physical objects, because of the prayer associated with them, mm-hmm. not that they're just some form of like talisman or superstition, yeah. but that because of their association with prayer can be a defence against evil. Absolutely. I think that's so important. Obviously, there is always a danger of making them into sort of like a superstitious talisman, like you said, that like, you know, oh, if you're holding this thing or if you're wearing this medal, you know, nothing bad will happen to you. Yeah, I think we can also get that from like a poor understanding of sacramentals. Yeah. Um, it was a view that I would have come from when I was a Protestant. Yeah. Um, that like, what are you doing? <laughs> using sacramentals is definitely something that I could do more of. I'm not someone who always remembers them or always thinks about them. We have a friend who, like, always has holy water, always has holy salt, is always ready with those things. She'll sprinkle her classroom with holy salt beforehand. Yeah. And just, like, have it in her pocket. <laughs> yeah, which I love. It's Great. A, but it's definitely... It's not something that always comes incredibly naturally to me, but I do love the fact that we can have this tradition within our faith that gives us a kind of a spiritual anchor to literally hold on to. The thing that I I was saying to Phoebe before this started is that one of my favourite things about Dracula is this sense of, it's kind of like a sense of doom. I don't think it's fate because I don't think it's like set in stone, but there's this sense that not only are they being attacked by a manifestation of evil but everything that can go wrong kind of does go wrong and you are there at certain points going no yeah and maybe some of that is informed by the fact that there's a sort of evil presence hovering around them but I also think some of it is literally just things can go wrong and like I guess from a Catholic point of view whether you know Satan and, and Dracula are the same thing or whatever that like we would still believe that there is a evil force outside of time that can trip you up and so the thing that I really love is that not that 
evil is so overpowering that everything goes wrong and that good cannot penetrate. But rather that, like, that's kind of the reason we do have sacramentals, which is so much of our lives and well-being and safety are contingent on very small things that can either go well or go wrong. Like, I literally had a whole day recently, like, thrown out of place because I lost one of my favourite brooches. And, like, that's such a silly thing and I just shouldn't be so attached to, like, physical objects in that way. But at the same time, that we're so susceptible to being turned upside down by very small incidents within our days. And that we do believe that through prayer and through sacramentals, that those are the things that kind of guard us during our day. Yeah, I think it very much, for me, ties in with one of the things I love about the saints, which is the idea of them interceding for you when you don't know that you need prayer. Yeah. Like, I've had instances of having lost something and turn like realize I've lost it and turn back for it, mm-hmm. and then saying thank you Saint Saint Anthony. Yeah, because it's that like nudge. Yeah, that you don't know to pray for it yet. Yeah, I think sacramentals are something of that same thing that they're a protection against what you don't know to pray against. Absolutely, I think that's exactly yeah. it. I think there's also there's a great quote from near the beginning of Dracula on the comfort of these sacramentals. So there's this woman that gives Jonathan Harker a set of rosary beads on his travels because she's afraid for him and where he's going to go. It says, She then rose and dried her eye and taking the crucifix from her neck, offered it to me. I did not know what to do, for as an English churchman, I had been taught to regard such a thing as in some measure idolatrous. And yet it seemed so ungracious to refuse an old lady meaning so well and in such a state of mind. She saw, I suppose, the doubt in my face, for she put the rosary around my neck and said, for your mother's sake, and went out of the room. I love that. Mm. Double meaning. Then later, when he is taking comfort from this, bless that good, good woman who hung the crucifix round my neck, for it is a comfort and a strength to me whenever I touch it. It is odd that such a thing which I have been taught to regard with disfavour and as idolatrous should, in a time of loneliness and trouble, be of help. Is it that there is something in the essence of the thing itself, or is it a medium, a tangible help, in conveying memories of sympathy and comfort? Sometime, if it may be, I must examine the matter and try to make up my mind about it. And then he literally never comes back to that again. Like, it's so annoying to me that they all sort of take all of these things on face value and they accept using them. There's a great line where it talks about being armed with immortal instruments on your right hand and mortal instruments on your left. And it's great. But you also kind of feel like, I know there's a lot happening. I know you're being attacked by a literal vampire. But is there not any time in your brain to be like, I wonder if this means that Catholicism is right? (laughs) But we never quite get there. <laughs> yeah, I think for me that's also a really important reminder of how it is important it is to share our sacramentals with people. Yeah. You, like, you get that impression of like the Irish granny giving you the rosary beads still like tucking them into your bag. Yeah. And I think there is a part of that gesture done in love, mm-hmm. which also, yeah, like we said, it's not a talisman but it is an act of prayer in the giving yeah. as well. Yeah, and I love what you said about it being like an object that has prayer bestowed on it so that so that we can experience grace in the face of things that we don't know to pray about. Yeah, but, and it's not like, oh, God won't help you because you don't have it. Yeah. But that we do believe prayer is efficacious. Mm-hmm. And yet so often we don't know what we need prayer for. Yeah. Or we don't know what our loved one need prayer for. Absolutely, yeah. So I just, it to me it's such a great story to illustrate people taking sacramentals and using them. We will say that we feel like they could use them a little bit more. Like, is there a sort of limit on how many crucifixes are allowed within a group of people? Why doesn't everyone get a crucifix? Yeah, there's definitely a point where the professor is arming those who are going out to fight, Mm -hmm. but they're leaving some people behind. Mm -hmm. And you're like, and why doesn't she just have a crucifix on? Yeah. Like, why don't you just do that simple action. Yeah. And I think that maybe ties us into another point that I wanted to mention briefly on a kind of your reluctance to share and a like shamefaced disbelief kind of mm-hmm. or fear of what others will fear that others will scoff at your belief. Yeah. 
that I think Van Helsing in particular is very reluctant to share what he knows for fear of being scoffed at. Yeah. And that does quite a lot of damage. Mm-hmm. And there's definitely instances where you wish he'd just taken that extra leap. And I think we can, in turn, be afraid of being seen as superstitious and yeah. can ignore those little gestures like having a holy water font by the door and blessing ourselves. Yeah. And I think I particularly um, recently realised some of the power of those sacramentals when you were away. Yeah. In that I was having really bad nightmares and started blessing my pillow with holy water mm-hmm. and blessing myself. And that act of prayer and, like, asking for the intercession of the saints, like, completely, like, stopped the nightmares. Yeah, so I love that. I think there's just so many instances of grace that can come from using these things. Yeah, and I think... I am, I definitely agree that it's a, a tightrope that you have to walk, especially in the modern age, where there's a, a sort of self-involved fear of being laughed at. There is also, like, a genuine concern about coming off as sort of ridiculous and, like opening people to sort of think less of your faith because they think it's so superstitious, I guess. Um, Yeah, and they think that you can't do anything unless you have a rosary in your pocket. Yeah, exactly. There's a kind of, there's a place of using sacramentals from a place of fear rather than a place of, of, you know, hope. It's not that you're afraid that something will happen, but that you hope that something will be made, uh, like a path will be made straight for you. I, I do think that it is worth trying to balance those things in the modern age. I think it's worth trying to not, even to the, just to the outside world, present your faith as a, as a purely either philosophical thing or even just a purely spiritual thing. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm spiritual but not religious is, like, the, the big slogan for that. Because I think the reality of the, the Catholic understanding is a much more tangible thing. I think it's really telling that this novel was written kind of around a similar time as uh, Pope Leo XIII was writing the prayer to St. Michael the Archangel. Oh, that's uh, really interesting. Isn't it? That, like, you know, he was having, he's reported to have had a vision about Satan having a conversation with Christ and, and the menace that Satan presents to the world. And so he writes this prayer, which it directly addresses the wickedness and snares of the devil. That. I pray that prayer every single day, but it still strikes me as something that it seems at odds with what the world is telling you. Like the world is telling you that the evils that you will encounter are very banal evils. And in many ways they are, but that there is still a menace that is the wickedness and snares of the devil. And that also, I think that we shouldn't be so like, there is a sense that we associate the use of these items as like we were saying, superstitious, which almost kind of verges maybe towards occultish. And I think in many ways, actually, that that's not a, a correct understanding of it. There is a great interaction where G.K. Chesterton was accused of writing a very kind of derogatory piece about spiritualism, which they actually misattributed it. He didn't actually write it. They were thinking of someone else. But (laughs) (laughs) So he was like, I didn't even, like, this wasn't even me. But that this, I think it was an article was written about him in in some spiritualism paper. And uh, this this quote is so great because it both sums up the topsy-turvy, scatterbrained uh, use of sacramentals in Dracula, but also brings in our experience in the modern day. So he's quoting what this spiritualism, which obviously in that age means more occultic than maybe we necessarily understand it today. So he quotes them saying, spiritualism depends only on the evidence which people receive in their own homes. It does not require priests, neither do the inquirers have to buy rosaries or beads or crucifixes or pay for candles or masses. And then he himself goes on to say, It must be a dreadful moment of indecision for the inquirers when they have to make up their minds whether they will buy rosaries or beads. But the last term is the best, and here the order of words is especially significant. Apparently, the first object of a Catholic is to get a candle. (laughs) If once he can get a hold of a candle and walk about everywhere clasping his candle, he is all right. But if he cannot get a candle, he has the alternative of purchasing a mass, an instrument that is a sort of substitute for a candle. (laughs) (laughs) And then he goes on to say, 
Now, I did not, as it happens, launch any grand persecuting personal spiritual attack on spiritualism, as this writer imaginatively described. But if I did, as of course I might, I do think I could make a better job of attacking spiritualism than he does of attacking Catholicism. I should not talk as if a spiritualist hung suspended between the two divine dogmas of the sacredness of tambourines and the return of the dead. I should not talk as if men choose between a planchette and a Ouija board. I should not talk about tables or furniture or imply that a trumpet was the same sort of thing as a seance. But I never read an attack on Catholicism without finding this ignorant gabble of terms all topsy-turvy. There is always some such medley of misused words in which mitres, misereres, nuns, albs, croziers, virgins and viaticums tumble over each other without the wildest hope that anybody could possibly know what any of them mean. (laughs) I love that. I think it also really shows some of the confusion which the outside world has of our Catholic rituals. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Which we forget about a lot. Yeah. Which kind of ties us into the bloody habit Mm -hmm. in that I think there's a really interesting piece in that of showing what the Catholic faith looks like from an outside perspective and what it means to encounter this form of evil from a perspective which is not only not Catholic, but not Christian. It's Mm. agnostic. And the main character has so much of a harder time of it Mm -hmm. because he only wants the spiritual on his terms. Yeah. And... When he's going to like a seance or something, you can also see like the levels of opening yourself up to those dangers, I think, which mm-hmm. is quite interesting. But the bit that really stood out to me is like there's a part where he goes to a Catholic mass, and then up the front, an odd, solemn ritual began like a dance. I felt like a spectator at a pagan ceremony. I did not fear sacrifice, but I did not want to witness their cannibalistic theatre. Don't they disdain symbolism, I thought, and pretend to feast on the living corpse of their god? They were as bad as the vampires. Now that was a thought to bring chills. And as the door closed behind my fleeing form, I heard the bright chiming of bells. Yeah. I think there's just something in that, like, fleeing from the consecration, which is really telling. And that, like, seeing the two on a par, Mm -hmm. that they're both this physical manifestation of something and the agnostic mind cannot comprehend it. Yeah, that he is so much more further of a leap of understanding to go from then the characters in Dracula who aren't Catholic, but they are Christian. And so the idea that God willing the good and... And they automatically turn to God in prayer. Yeah. Particularly the character who's crying out that she's unclean is automatically crying out of help from God. Yeah. And that that is so tied with our sacramentals that they yeah. are tied to a plea for help from God. Yeah, and I know when Eleanor Burke Nicholson first had the idea to write this novel, it was because she looked at one of those sort of macabre paintings that hang in Catholic convents and whatnot, and she remembers thinking that, like, if Catholics were to take on vampires, it would only be because they are just as, like, wildly macabre as vampires. <laughs> and we're fighting on the same plane, which I think is exactly right. We are fighting on the same plane, that it isn't this sort of cosy, ethereal, never pin-downable experience. It's a real thing that happens, that sacraments are a sign of an inner working of grace, that that actually, like, something actually happens when you get baptised, something actually happens when you consecrate the host. Yeah, it's not just a symbol. (laughs) Yeah. As Flannery O'Connor says, famously, if it's a symbol, to hell with it. Catholicism demands that you that your faith is something that is real and that it incorporates things that are physically real and present. Definitely. And I think that's maybe a good point to, to close off our discussion of Dracula. It was so much fun listening to it with you and getting to discuss it as we were going along. Especially earlier on, I had mentioned that like the use of sacramentals in this book is so baffling. And we hadn't actually gotten to the parts of the use of sacramentals. And Phoebe was like, I think it's fine. And I, I just had that like part of the use of the rosaries and his use of the rosary in the crucifix is perfect absolutely perfect except not quite enough (laughs) but yeah I was like oh just wait for it (laughs) 
but the sacred wafer crumbled into putty. It's it's <laughs> so so frustrating, but on the whole, yeah. absolutely love it. It's I so do think fun. there is a really interesting part there when we talk about Dracula as the anti eucharistic villain. Mm. That it's the physical presence of the host mm-hmm. which banishes him. Not only like that he's fleeing from it, but they're putting the host in the coffins. Where they were supposed to return to rest, yeah. Um, And that the coffin is therefore inhabited Mm -hmm. by that which is holy. Yeah. You could say that in that case, at least he's not crumbling up the host. There is at least a logic to it. I I agree. There is like a physical presence of the host which mm -hmm. is counteracting the physical presence of the vampire and they can't inhabit the same space. Yeah, I think we as Catholics would say that there's still like a lack of reverence for that object. But at least like in terms of logic, it kind of makes sense in in a sort of a positive way that you're saying that this space is now inhabited by a physical body, which is Christ's body. And so it cannot also be inhabited by the vampire. So yeah, I think that that is maybe the area where it kind of at least makes the most sense, even if it's not (laughs) quite to Catholic taste. But yeah, no, it was fantastic listening to it. And I hope our listeners have enjoyed diving into the world of Bram Stoker's Dracula. And I think that means that there's only one question left to ask, which is, what have you been enjoying at the moment, Phoebe? Well, I think we just spent the whole episode talking about something that we've been enjoying recently. Pretty much. Um, But to pull out something else, you may have mentioned this before, but we've been doing a Jane Austen reread. And our latest reread is Pride and Prejudice. And I've been greatly enjoying not only the rereading of that, but the endless conversations with you, and then like the previous conversations on sense and sensibility mm-hmm. with everyone. They're just such great books to talk over, yeah. as well as to read. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm also going to pick out a book. When it comes to this time of year, I get my full opportunity to say a line of poetry over and over again, which me and my dad constantly reference which is um, as golden October declined into sombre November and the apples were gathered and stored and the land became brown sharp points of death in a waste of water and mud which comes from the opening page of Murder in the Cathedral which is the play by T.S. Eliot about the death of St. Thomas Becket but to my shame I had never actually read the full play I'd read small parts of it but mainly just that opening page with that glorious autumnal quote. So I am now taking the time to actually read the play in full and I'm very much enjoying it. So I think that's pretty much it. The only other thing that I want to say is I announced this a little bit at the end of the last episode but there is now a form on my website which you can fill in if you want to get emails about the new episodes of the podcast but if you get them automatically to your phone I think it might also be worth signing up for it because I'm hoping to do some other emails. We're going to announce some of the books that we're reading maybe in advance so that say you could know that we're going to do an episode on Dracula and then read the book in advance if you were that dedicated a fan. But I have heard some people saying that like they then want to read the book before they listen to the episode. So uh, yeah, I think I'll be trying to announce things like that and maybe a few other small things that might be happening that we're trying to get organised. So just more great Risking Enchantment content coming your way. So speaking of which, are we going to tell them what we're doing for the next episode as a teaser or not? Yeah, I think I think it's pretty much set in stone. I'm always worried about announcing just because... <laughs> I feel like maybe plans change. but I don't think we can help talking about this book. No, this book was recommended by our friend Julie, who messaged me to tell me about this amazing book by Agatha Christie. And it was written under a pseudonym, uh, Mary Westmacott. And she wrote this book called Absent in the Spring, which is an amazingly theological book. And I think we're also going to compare it to uh, C.S. Lewis's Till We Have Faces. So if you have time in the intervening two weeks, I believe that's going to be our next episode. Like I said, I'm hoping to do this kind of thing rather than sort of having this section at the end of the podcast. I'm hoping to do it through the emails. Um, Absent in the Spring is also really short quick read yeah not only is it a short read but it's one that you cannot put down there's few books that I describe as unputdownable and that is definitely one of them I had a day off she left me sitting on the sofa starting the book mm-hmm. and came back a few hours later to me having only moved to make tea 
that's it. I'm finishing the book. Yeah. So if you want to sign up for that, if you go to my website, rachelsherlock.com and just click on the tab for podcast, or you can say rachelsherlock.com forward slash podcast, and you should be able to find the form there. It's at the bottom of the page and it's just your name and your email address. And so I'll be sending out those emails. So it would be lovely to uh, get to reach out to you guys that way as well. So I hope that's everything. Other than that, the usual follow us on Instagram, reach out to us, say hi. And it's always a joy, definitely being in lockdown. It's great to have something like the podcast that's a, a bit of a project to be doing. In we the feel like we've actually done something. And we're talking to people and like exciting. interacting with people. It's very exciting. So other than that, I hope you're all keeping well and goodbye. Goodbye. This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at SeekingWatson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.